This is Suzanne York with Humans Optimized. We specialize in change management for technology adoption by bringing together advancements in technology with elevated human skills. Our aim is to cultivate human-to-human and human-to-technology collaboration. This combination will allow us to take advantage of the immense opportunities in the future of work. Generative culture is the holy grail of any technology-driven company and the noble quest of any CIO. Well, or really for any leader of people or change, for that matter. Everyone wants it, but few are able to find it. Generative culture supports smart people, the right smart people, as they solve the right problems. It's a magnet for talent that helps you recruit and retain those smart people too. It's the essence of teams that are high-performing and innovative. Done right, it can take you into Netflix territory, defining and dominating an entire sector of the economy. So what is a generative culture? Why is it especially critical to technology environments? And how do you create it? Jeremy Duval, founder of Seven Factor Software, is committed to building a smart, flexible, human-centric team of experienced software architects, engineers, and developers who obsess about quality and will give clients honest, expert advice. Jeremy, welcome, and thanks for being here today. Hey, Suzanne. I am excited to be here. Well, we have had some great conversations, and all of those I wish I had already hit record. So we're going to do our best to distill them into a single episode. And let's start by, you know, unpacking part of that introduction and breaking down some of the core ideas behind your culture and your business. So tell me more about what it means to create a generative culture that treats engineers as first-class citizens. Yeah, so I think the best place to start is to think there are three different types of cultures. And and this is something that's gone around um, in industry for a while now. Many of you may be aware of it. Uh, There's this taxonomy that was created um, on culture. And and we describe those as uh, first, pathological, which is the one you don't want to be a part of. uh, Two, bureaucratic, which is fairly common uh, and not terribly difficult. It's not a bad thing to have a bureaucratic culture in certain cases. And then finally is generative. And and the big difference between those is it's very much based on how you treat people. And there's some some words to describe each of these. Like, for example, pathological is negative and power-oriented. Bureaucratic is seen as negative, but rule-oriented, which in many cases is better than power-oriented, at least for the people who are under said power and or rules. And then finally, uh, generative, which is performance-oriented culture. And and that's what, uh, when you listen to top leaders, they're always saying, we have a performance-oriented culture and we care about our people and their performance. And in many cases, they really mean that. But the difficulty is in that, how do you get this ideology of caring about people yet being a performance-oriented culture? It sounds like a bit of of a dichotomy there. How do you get those two items to play nicely together? And how do you take that and trickle it into all aspects of your business and not just, you know, your subset of leaders. And it takes starting from the ground up with mm. defining what these ideas mean. And, and a lot of it, to be completely transparent, is how you treat others. And yeah. how you treat others is very much rooted in what? Communication. 
Right. Yeah. And what what's so fun for me in the analogy that you're using about ground up and rooted is when I hear the word generative culture, I think of growth and reproducing what's good and having it be somewhat organic. So you're not forcing the, the results or the growth within the company. It's coming from within. So when you started talking about the ground up and roots, it really matched my idea of of picturing growth. And what do you do for something that's growing? Well, you certainly don't stifle it. You water it. You give it light. So keep going with where, where you were headed with that. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a fantastic analogy. And the other thing I want to kind of point out is, you know, in your word pictures there, we were talking about this infectious sort of transfer of culture to others. I, maybe maybe too soon, given the environment that we're in yeah. right now. Uh, <laughs> but, but, I mean, the, the picture still stands in that a generative culture is something that you want to be infectious. It's something that you want to start by, by cultivating at the very ground floor, uh, which are the people on the floor executing and getting things done on the day to day. And you want that to bloom out and start infecting the new folks that come into your company. I, I, every single time I have an interview, um, I start with interviewing candidates myself and I describe to them what our culture looks like. And it almost immediately, I have, I have never had a bad reaction to the description of what we do and how we do it and how we treat one another. Instead Mm of talking to an engineer about what is an interface and why are manhole covers round, which those are fair questions. I I talk about why do you care about coming into work every day? Like what excites you about being an engineer? Because developers, we're special people. Uh, We have some, (laughs) some requirements that not a lot of people know about because we're so introverted, at least most of us are. And it takes a bit of, of experience managing an engineering team before you start to really kind of pick up on what they need and how to feed and care for, for a group of extremely smart um, people that just want to, in the end, make you happy. Yeah. Well, I had an experience in my career where I was literally the liaison between the marketing team and the technology team. And I think part of it is because they couldn't be more different from the lenses through which they view the world. And so many times they would try to come together on alignment on something and just were missing the high fives. And so I came in to help really bridge the gap between them and saw and came to appreciate the differences and the value that each side brought. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a gross generalization about the two differences, but I can appreciate what you're saying with the, you know, the kind of the nature of a a technology team. I think that's dead on. And and I I find that a lot of the times when, when I would have a discussion, so my journey came from hardcore technical engineering, uh, working to build the T-Mobile sidekick at Danger, which not a lot of people remember what that is, <laughs> on to Microsoft and other very tech-heavy companies. And then I got into consulting and I recognized that the biggest thing that's missing in a software team is their capability to reach across the aisle and have communications and conversations with other folks in a generative fashion. Um, And I think without that sort of core foundation of we're all here to solve the same problem, we're all here to achieve the same goal, I I feel like we miss the point. Um, And in many cases, again, we have our offsites and we have, you know, our happy hours and we have all of these things that are designed to sort of team build. But again, some of those even miss the point, too, because while while they're very well-meaning, they don't necessarily facilitate better communication. Every every happy hour that I went to when I worked at a specific consultancy, what would I do? I would sit next to the people that I knew how to talk to Mm. and I would have conversations with the people that, that 
that I could nerd out for whatever reason. And, and I think that one of the chief difficulties of developing a communicative generative culture is being able to reach across the aisle, find common ground and have conversations about real things uh, that we're trying to build together in a respectful way. Well, uh, what I want to bring forward is you talked about in your interview process talking about ideologies. Well, your company name, Seven Factors, mm-hmm. is about a set of ideologies. Uh, you're welcome to share as many or as few if this is a good time for that. It just really yeah. struck me that it's not Seven Factors of, of Software Design. Right. And, and I, a lot of people get confused. They say like, oh, is that like 12 factor app, but you know, without five factors, uh, that's, <laughs> a, that's a nerdy joke. Um, and, and it's, it's, I have to explain myself to some of the CIOs in the room of no, actually, maybe I picked the wrong name for my company, but it makes a really cool logo. So I'm going to go with it. Um, <laughs> we had seven ideas uh, that we followed that are rooted in this idea of how do you create a generative communicative culture for an engineering team. And and when I train my folks, I'm going to go through them real quick. First is be a force multiplier. That one to me is my favorite one. Um, And basically what you're doing here is you're seeking to teach, elevate, and strengthen the team, but do so mercifully. That's a word that sounds awkward in our sort of corporate culture where, you know, we tend to want to use very strong, bold words that are authoritative. And, you know, mercy is a very weak word with some connotations that not a lot of people uh, might find attractive. But to me, it's the perfect word to describe when you're working on a team with someone and they make a mistake is your first inclination to go after them and blame them and point fingers, or is your Mm. first inclination to produce what's called a blameless postmortem and have a conversation about, how do we get better from here, right? Uh, Yes, you made a mistake. And if it's a really big mistake, there may be consequences to pay. But that doesn't mean that we attack other people and we create, again, this power hungry, uh, you shall be punished by, you know, the emperor style of culture. Um, Second is improvement is never done. This is rooted in Kaizen and Kanban. Uh, We want to be able to fearlessly change things and not worry uh, about people coming back to us and being upset that the status quo has been harmed. Uh, do no harm to others, be ethically responsible and hold each other accountable. This fits beautifully into the generative culture idea. Do the right thing always uh, in all cases. That doesn't just apply to code. It applies to interactions as well. Um, curiosity is the chief architect. Uh, this one is is a more of a development-oriented one in that uh, a curious person tends to find the most interesting and innovative solutions because we're not just repeating things that we've done 15 times. Um, equality and diversity are first-class citizens. Again, fitting directly into generative culture. We ca- we do not care about where you come from or your your orientation. Uh, we want to make sure that you we are fair and everyone's uh, voice has equal weight, right? Seek consensus. Uh, number six is our, our dorky little tagline, which is build good things. Um, <laughs> that's a big deal to me. And a, a lot of people are like, well, why don't you say build great things and build awesome things? And I feel like good is a very... So it's a great word. I think it works just fine there uh, because it sort of, again, evokes this sense of stability. It evokes this mm. sense of commonality and it paints a picture of it's good. It, it doesn't have to be great because 
you know, great tends to come with some bravado. It's good. It's the things hidden in engineering and engineers are like this too. We tend to be hidden behind the scenes and doing a really good job to solve business problems and to prop up some of the most powerful companies in the world. And we rarely get credit for it. <laughs> right. Yes. You if know? the lights are on, everyone, nobody notices. <laughs> exactly. And finally, love what you do. And, and the reason I, I put this one in there is I really am passionate about software engineering. You know, I'm a Georgia Tech grad. I, I went twice, got my master's because I enjoy pain, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I have always loved the the process of developing software. And I even, when I became a manager at a consultancy I was working for and eventually started Seven Factor, the thing I realized even more is I absolutely love working with people and helping them. So the CIOs on our client list and the folks that I just talk to on a regular basis, I love having conversations about things like how do you create a generative culture and how do you build a high-performing engineering team that actually cares about one another and in turn cares about the the goal that we're attempting to, 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 to get as a team. Mm. Well, and it sounds funny that we have to make that claim, you know, that people who actually care about one another, there's, there's a bit of a misunderstanding, I think, about technology organizations. And so let's talk a little bit more about who are we talking about, about the technology um, professionals themselves and why a culture like this is so attractive to them. Right. So developers are are, are funny people. Uh, we, we are a peaceful people, um, but, but we definitely have some requirements. And this is something, again, a lot of people miss uh, when they're hiring their technology teams. You know, developers want to feel um, appreciated for what they do. Um, even the most type A of the type A, right? I mean, I'm a fan of the disk scale. And uh, we have uh, DISC profiles on all our incoming folks. And, and we, we talk about how DISC is a wonderful tool for learning how to communicate with people who aren't necessarily like you. Most of the people on my team are high Ds and high Cs. Um, what that means is that they're dominant, i.e. they have an opinion, and they're conscientious, which means they're very detail-oriented. So when you put a bunch of dominant people who are very detail-oriented <laughs> in the same room, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> lots of opinions and lots of care. <laughs> You're probably going to start arguing. <laughs> and, but that's okay. It, it, one of the things that we teach people is that it's okay to argue as long as we're respectful, and it's okay for us to have conversations as long as we are respectful with one another. The big thing you want to avoid here is toxic people and toxic cultures. Mm. And I hate saying that because I believe everyone in this world can can have a second chance and people can, you know, get better and change and, and modify their behavior if given enough guidance. But there are some folks that we've all run into that are a bit toxic and they make it hard for anyone to work with them and for us to build a team that goes in a certain direction. So that toxicity could be is for many different reasons. It could, could it could be because this individual doesn't feel appreciated and uh, they've kind of gone to a bad place psychologically. It could be because this individual really thinks that they're smarter than everyone else in the room, um, which is a bad place to be as well. At that point, you should probably move on if you think you're smarter than everybody else. In the yeah. room you're not being challenged. Or, you know, there it could just be that there's a, you know, that person had a bad day. Who knows? So going back to that mercy and, and sort of the idea of grace, we do want to give people enough shots, but we also have to be very strict guardians of our culture. And the second we see something that's starting to lean towards toxic, I challenge every leader that's listening to this to just attack that. 
again, don't don't be mean about it and don't don't uh, cause that person, uh, you know, angst and or get yourself into a lawsuit situation. But certainly you, we as leaders, it's up to us to protect our culture and it's up to us to make sure that the folks that are on our teams are adhering to the direction that we are setting at a higher level. Mm. That that really brings to mind for me setting the playing field for the right work to get done and the, the work to get done in the right way. And I say playing field because there is a degree where the technology um, professionals are athletes and there's also yeah. a part where they're artists. Yes. So let's talk about both the artist and the athlete. I love I love these word pictures and um, they're two two of my favorite things I like to talk to people. So developers are kind of like mental athletes and some folks, maybe this makes sense to you as you hear that word, or, or maybe you're kind of like, what? what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> developers have to, because of, okay, so let me back up. Because of the amount of things that we as an engineering team have to understand on a given day, it's gotten to the point to where we're doing everything. So when you talk about this whole DevOps idea, maybe you've heard of that buzzword. The, the point mm-hmm. of DevOps was to bring Agile to the operations space. And what happened in this sort of revolution that's occurred upon the last maybe eight years or so um, is that engineers have gotten a lot more responsibility towards making sure that the things that they create are getting into production. Some companies still have a segregation between a DevOps team and an engineering team, but for a consultancy like mine and, and for a lot of the startups that we work uh, work for, there's not enough budget there to segregate those ideas into two separate actual teams and create this sort of matrix um, between them. So in, engineers need to now learn, uh, how do I get my thing into production? How do I use this thing called Terraform or CloudFormation or whatever the Azure thing is. I don't remember the name of it. Um, but there's there's a huge amount of information that's coming into me as an engineer that I have to learn. So now let's take that and put on top of that, layer on top of that, the idea of that I now need to know how to um, write my DevOps. I know how I need to know how to write my code in whatever framework I'm into. And if you're starting to embrace this idea of being a polyglot shop where there are multiple technologies that are in-house, which we subscribe to, now mm-hmm. you have to learn additional technologies right. and you have to learn what it's like to write something in, you know, Ruby on Rails versus Golang versus C sharp. And, you know, people can alleviate this on their teams by selecting specific technologies, and and that can be very helpful at times. But it doesn't change the fact that if you're a JavaScript developer and you go look at NPM, there's like a billion packages. How do you know which one does what you want it to do? Mm -hmm. You don't. You have to go through this, this, this learning process to figure out if the thing in front of you, the hammer in front of you, is even going to be able to smash in the nail that you're trying to, to smash in. So, the, the idea of engineers being mental athletes, we always have to practice. We always have to continually sharpen our skills. Software engineering is, is like 80 years old, right? My wife is a yeah. structural engineer. Structural engineering has been around for thousands of years. Plus we have gravity, right? We know. We have physics. Yeah. We know how <laughs> physics works. Like gravity yeah. isn't going to change and screw up all of our bridge equations, right? Um, in our world, a new invention, a new language, a new framework can flip everything that we know on its head. And we mm-hmm. now have to start over in relearning how what I do fits in this framework. And we're right. in a bit of a gold rush in a sense where every technologist and all of the incredibly smart humans out there that, that love their skills and know how to write code 
are building frameworks and they want other people to use them. And there's no like formal way for us to figure out if this is the right thing to do. So you can just imagine, you know, Suzanne, if you had to every day wake up and look at your email and see what came out today, <laughs> that's going to yeah, change how I do my job. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And the things you know now, which you didn't even know four years ago and then four years from now, I'd say four just because it's an easy number. But Mm -hmm. it is that I am constantly amazed at the rate and pace, not only of technology, but what people have to do to stay on top of learning it. And then that that takes us to this idea of them being artists because they care and it's, it's an art form. And I don't know, tell me, take me more on the journey of of a developer as an artist. So if, if anyone listening to this thinks that a developer is someone that just sits there and Googles code and copies and pastes there, what we call in the business copy pasta, that <laughs> to a file and moves on to the next ticket, you are very mistaken. Yeah. Uh, software engineers, like especially, you know, there, there's two different types. There, there's the classically trained engineers that come out of university. And these folks are taught theory and they're taught big O notation, like what I was taught in school. And they're taught all kinds of really fancy sort of, you know, theoretical and kind of classical, I, I kind of liken it to being a classically trained musician. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, you know how to play the Beethoven and the Bach and you can sight read and you can do all these things that, you know, a person who just comes out of a random profession and decides, you know what, technology is cool. I want to learn how to code. Those folks have a totally different thought process. Um, And the two merge. Like I have both sides on my team and I love it because they're two totally different takes on the same profession. And I've never seen that. Like I don't know of any profession out there where you can have that much of a diverse view in on how to do the job. Maybe I'm missing some things, but it's incredibly cool to watch someone like Amy who is self-taught. Uh, and comparing her to someone like Ahmed, who is like me, went to Georgia Tech and has sort of a, you know, a theoretical grasp on how things work and how they approach solving the problems. So when I say that, you know, technologists are artists, we really sort of range on, on sort of a scale of heading more towards your classical engineer and your classically trained musician to heading more towards like your, your jazz improv musician, right? Someone who, who can just, you know, go over a scale and play all kinds of crazy notes. And it kind of sounds cool if you're into jazz, right? So being an artist means that there is opinion inserted into what you do, right? When an artist paints a picture, you could, you know, paint a picture of, of a house, uh, you know, and it be the exact house in front of you, right? You could do, I don't know the word for it, but a, a portrait of something that's in front of you, or you can just reach into the depths of your imagination and come up with some interesting abstract thing to paint and to throw up on your canvas. And those could be equally appreciated, by people. Right. right. And folks don't get that in engineering space. We, we've tried to codify it and make it more like a structural engineering discipline where, you know, there's only five ways of doing it right. In fact, the matter is there's not. Uh, mm. That's why we have so many frameworks and languages and, and packages and, you know, methodologies and solutions. I mean, granted, there's a toolbox. There's a basic set of skills that everybody needs. I liken it to being able to mix colors on, on, on your, um, Palette, uh, yeah. On your palette, sorry. Yeah, being able to yeah, mix yeah. colors on your palette. Uh, that's a basic skill that every artist needs to know how to do or perception or lighting. Like there's plenty of ideas in art in, in art that map well to fundamental skills. But when it comes to I tell you I want you to solve this problem for me and I give you a blank canvas, you are going to paint what makes the most sense to you. And you may bring in some some ideas that you've seen. 
from other artists, i.e. your colleagues, i.e. developers that have mentored you or engineers that are better than you or that you respect and, and, and follow on Twitter or something of that nature. But at the end of the day, this thing that you're creating is yours. And yeah. it's, it's of paramount importance to understand that. But there's one last facet that is not at all like artistry. That painting is not finished. So when you go and you do your work and you create this beautiful framework and you build this awesome code and you use test-driven development or you use automated testing and you have this glorious test suite and the, the product works, guess what? You're going to move on to the next thing and there's going to be someone come along behind you that has to then take over your project. This is called support engineering. And this is another podcast all in of itself. <laughs> I bet. Writing clean code and developing architectures that make sense is part of a generative culture. And as an mm-hmm. artist, it is your job to build in support and maintainability into the thing that you just created for the person that comes after you. And wow. that fits into our world because it is generative. You're yes. looking after the person that's coming next to support and maintain this software. And you're not just thinking about you know, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a haughty artist and I did this awesome thing and look at me and it's so cool. You're still thinking in the back of your head, well, I know someone's going to come along and have to continue this painting. So I'm going to leave you lines. I'm going to leave you a, uh, you know, a paint by color, yes. <laughs> maybe yeah. not color by color. That's maybe a bad example. I do, I do. Direction. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, this has really been great to talk about this idea of the right culture and getting the right people in it to do the right work. Mm. So I picture we've set the stage, we've created the atmosphere for the performers to come in and give their greatest performance. So what does the greatest performance look like? We, we've talked about everything from unicorn rescues to the, to the apps that you've been building. So what are the results of having put in place a culture like this? It's, the results are that I can go to sleep at night and know that my team will get it done. And yeah. if they don't or if they have a problem, they will come to me and we'll have a conversation and we'll sort it or they'll talk to their customer. So let's talk about my context, right? In my context, a generative culture, a high-performing team, a team that respects one another creates this atmosphere where we can have conversations about what is the best talk technology to use for a certain problem, right? We can have a conversation about what are what are the pros and cons between functional programming and object-oriented programming. When might we want to use Golang for a specific um, problem? And when might we want to use Java for a specific problem? I have a really silly phrase in my organization, uh, and it's basically... Uh, use the right tool for the right job. If you want to dig a hole, use a shovel. If you want to cut a tree down, use a chainsaw. Don't dig a a hole with a chainsaw. Mm -hmm. You probably can, but you don't want to do that. You might lose a leg or something in the process. So a general (laughs) culture feels the freedom to use the right tool for the right job. If you have set up sort of an, an oppressive culture where you've you've forced people into lanes and you're kind of pounding them to conform to a corporate idea that sounds really good underneath the covers, but it stifles that creativity that a generative and communicative culture creates, you're going to find that your people are not going to innovate and they're not going to bring their all to work. They're mm-hmm. going to say, I'm here to do my job. I'm here to punch the clock and do my 40. I'll do my 40 and I'll get out. Trust me, I've hired these people away from companies and they come and work for me and they're like, holy crap, I can choose what I want to use. That's yeah. awesome. So yeah. you're building 
you're building a group of humans who want to solve problems for you and who genuinely are invested in the direction that your company is going in. Um, And that is the huge difference that I've seen from the folks that that work for us and the companies that we come in and help. I I see pathological and bureaucratic, you know, cultures every day. And for with, unfortunately, some of the folks that we're working with. Well, and this produces results. So tell us about the app that you've been doing and, and how amazing, um, I, I will tout you how amazing the app is and how the team really came together to do that. Yeah. So we have this thing called Well Entry, um, and it was an application that we, we, we're partners with a local um, healthcare firm, and uh, they do pediatric home care for um, like they have 30,000 caregivers across the entire United States. And so we're partners with them. We're their technology partner. And we uh, they came to us and said, hey, we have a problem. We have all these children that we, that we work with that are at risk, some of them, you know, much more at risk than others, depending on, on the ailment. And we need a way to make sure that the caregivers, this is during the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak, that the caregivers that are walking into those homes are, are screened and that we have a way to sort of put some checks and balances in place to ensure that we're not potentially damaging that home, that household. And mm. so, we worked with them and two of my engineers in about two months who were very excited and invested in this idea um, developed an entire platform called WellEntry, which is a COVID-19 slash infectious disease uh, screening platform that uh, was recently rolled out to these 30,000 caregivers. We also have a few schools that have been interested in it. Uh, we have a nonprofit in Brunswick, Georgia that we gave a free license to. It's a Morningstar Children's Home. Very much care about the kids that that home looks after. So we're like, Hey, have a license for free and, you know, don't care. Those are the kind of things that really get me excited. It's when I can help other people with, with the the technology that we built, but back to the team, they were invested in what they wanted to do. And guess what? I didn't tell them how to do it. I said, guys, here's the requirements. You select the technology, you select how you're going to solve these problems. Here's the, here's a few tickets in clubhouse. And here's some screenshots from our UX folks you guys go make this happen. And within no time flat, we had an entire working platform that we were rolling out as a production platform to, you know, again, one of the largest uh, home health care providers in the United States, if not the largest. So culture matters. And these folks cared about what they were building. They, yeah, two, they two people in two months given the freedom to do the work that they do best to have such a profound impact. And that, that to me is the, it really brings this home that yes, the culture sounds great, but it's not only in theory, it's also in practice and in the results. For sure. And I also want to say those two people were never burned out. A lot of the times when people hear, oh yeah, two people. Yeah. I bet, right. they, work, I bet they work like, you know, 60 hour weeks. They didn't. I know, I know because they're friends of mine and they yeah. didn't have 60 hour weeks. They worked their best and maybe 45 on the occasion, depending on a feature we really needed to get out. But they, they worked because they care about what they were doing and they were given the freedom to execute and to get it done on their own terms. Yeah. Well, let's sort of wrap up our conversation by bringing their voice into this. So we did ask a couple of your team members, what's the difference in culture? And um, if there's anything that came out of that conversation that would be worth sharing, I'd love to to bring their voice into this too. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I think probably some of my favorites um, was I, I had an engineer that came from a very large uh, pharmaceutical benefits management firm. And uh, he felt that the company and management just kind of latched onto the buzzwords and in industry. Again, going back to knowing your engineers, and this is important for business folks too. So if you're a business person listening to this, I would again challenge you to learn what it's like to be a developer. You don't have to know how to code or maybe you're like in awe of those, those guys or gals. I'm like, oh my God, they're so cool. They just write code. Or maybe you're like, I don't know what they do and I don't care what they do. It's important to understand the culture that engineers have to manage and deal with every day. And you know, not, not only do we have 15 things coming at us daily that we have to deal with and, and a new security bulletin that we have to fix in an NPM package or you know, a new gym that's got a security vulnerability and we have to roll back a patch number. There's so many operational day-to-day things that we're worried about. When, when management come to us and says, hey, I want to implement this new fancy buzzword called DevSecOps, we're just going to roll our eyes and be like, okay, <laughs> another one. Uh, this guy came from a world like that, and he came into Seven Factor where he's given the freedom to choose things, and he's given the freedom to influence how his team solves problems. And yeah. the huge difference that he finds is that that's open, and it's so open that I don't really know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. He even states, yeah, I'm not, I, I love working here because I, I can choose things, but there are times where I'm just overwhelmed because I'm like, I don't know what to choose. And it, it's, yes, it's a good situation. Up. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's going back to that mental athlete, like he's being stretched right now and he's been given a chance to kind of, you know, develop those muscles of being able to make his own decisions and not being sort of slammed into a mold of you have to do it this way. Wow. Well, that's fantastic. Well, we've, I think we've told a compelling story about the what, the why, and the who. So if someone's thinking, ah, I may not exactly have this culture, but I, I do want to take strides in getting there. What do you recommend? How do they start? I recommend that everyone start by getting to know the people that do the work on the floor. Um, and this goes from from a small startup to a ginormous company. And this may not be feasible for, you know, like the CEO of AT&T or something like that, or so, some massive corporation where you're, you're just so inundated with in the clouds, high level stuff that it's impossible for you to break free and go find what these folks do. But, you know, a developer reports to someone. In, in 99.999% of cases, I would challenge that person, if you have an engineer that reports to you, get to know exactly why they think what they think, not what they're thinking. It's easy to ask someone for their opinion, right? And they'll happily mm-hmm. tell you, well, this is how I feel. Right. What I've learned in, in my you know 15 years of doing this and, and five years of developing this company, well, four, almost five, of building this company from the ground up is that empathy is one of the most paramount and important skills that you can have as a human, not just as a leader, but as okay. a person. Because when you hear someone and they say something and there's frustration in their voice, you know you need to pick up on that and say, okay, let's go talk. Let's find out why you're frustrated. What's going on? Um, why are you feeling the way you're feeling? Not you aren't allowed to feel that way. Don't feel that way. Or we don't allow that type of feelings here at you know, Acme Corp. It's uh, – yeah. Why? Like, what What happened? Did I do something? Did someone on the team do something? And, and you know, maybe HR professionals are going like, oh, my God, don't do that, right? Because you'll get sued. But I've not been sued yet. And and I've had <laughs> I have phenomenal, you know, relationships with all of the 20 engineers on my team. They know me. They know who I am. I know their names. I know their spouse's name. I know their dog's name in some cases. And it's I think it's important. I learned that from 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 a guy that I used to work for for a consultancy here in town. And, and it, it, he actually 
uh, as a challenge at one of our quarterlies, and it just it left a huge impact on me. He, they, they, they did a game where they threw a picture up of one of the people. And there were 200 people at this consultancy at the time. And he rattled off the name and the spouse's name. And he did this like zero time flat. I was like, holy wow. crap, that's so cool. I want to be like that. I want to be able to say the name and, and the spouse and, and, you know, something fun about every person on my team. And, and getting to know those folks, you get to, you, you understand and you get in their head and you can become empathetic and you can start working on managing the emotions of your team. This is what I tell all my leaders and I'm done. Management and leadership is not telling other people what to do. Leadership to me is managing the emotions of your team and driving people towards a positive place to get positive outcomes. If you leave emotions on the wayside and you say emotions don't belong at work and it's just a, you know, it's a thing that we should never have to worry about. You are cutting out 90% of the human experience because we are emotional creatures at heart, whether you show it or you don't, we are emotional creatures. So ignoring that and cutting that out of your management strategy is a huge issue, at least in my experience. It's a huge problem that you will miss out on 90% of chances to increase the effectiveness of your team by making them feel accepted and their voice was heard and you actually give give a crap about what they have to say. Right. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, if we aren't asking the why behind the what, either the what they're doing or what they're thinking, then we'll fill in the blanks with our own story and not theirs. Correct. So with that said, um, this has been such a great conversation and I'm sure people will have more questions or or be excited to talk with you. How can people reach out to you and and get in in touch with you? Yeah, for sure. Just uh, my email address, right, is the best place to get a hold of me. It's uh, jduv at sevenfactor.io. You can also find us on the internet at uh, sevenfactor, the number seven, F-A-C-T-O-R dot I-O. Check us out on the WellEntry product page. That's wellentry.io. Uh, or just hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, Jeremy Duvall, pretty easy to find. I love talking to people. Um, so I'm more than happy to have a chat with anybody uh, that, that agrees or even disagrees with what I'm saying. Because again, we're Kaizen culture. I want to get better. If there's anything I've said that kind of feels a little off, love to have a conversation. Oh, what a great invitation. So, well, thank you so much for your time, Jeremy. It has been a true pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved every second of it. Thanks for listening to this episode. For more information and to contact us, visit www.humansoptimized.com.